Well, good morning to you. It's good to see you all here today. This time next week, I should be, Robert and I should be in England, along with Carrie and three other members of our church, and uh, I, I think I'm going to get to preach in an English church, either Black Hill Baptist or Raleigh Baptist there in the Durham, England area, um, and I'm just not sure what they're going to do with our accents. I hope they can understand me up there. They're going to hear a lot of y'all, because that's just part of my language. I don't even think about it when I say it. So be in prayer for us. Uh, Alan is going to pick up the next uh, sermon in this series uh, next Sunday, and and it's going to be fantastic about forgiveness. Uh, Today, we're looking at John 13, 34 through 35. So y'all turn there. John 13, 34 through 35. So I read a story some years ago about a, written by a man who said when he was a little boy, his home, the home he grew up in, was just not a happy home. It was the kind of house where there was a lot of disagreement, a lot of rivalry, suspicion, anger, and mealtimes were the worst part of the day. Supper time was the worst part of the day because it was the only time when the whole family had to be together in one room. And, and so mealtimes would be times of sometimes hostile silence, Sometimes awkwardness, sometimes even rage and anger and yelling and accusation. And, and the irony is that right next door to this boy's family lived the happiest family you can ever imagine. And sometimes this little boy in the middle of dinner would just excuse himself, would just leave his dinner on the, on the table. Nobody really cared whether he ate or not. He would just slip away and go outside and walk uh, next door and he was, he was too shy to knock on the door of that family's house, but he would crawl under the porch and he would listen to them have dinner. It's just a, I've read this story years ago and it stuck with me. It's such a poignant image. This little boy curled up under the porch listening to that family laugh and tell jokes and tell stories and encourage one another and just daydream about what it would be like to be in that family. And sometimes he'd think, wouldn't it be great if one of them would come outside and discover me and say, what are you doing here? Come on in. Come, come have dinner with us. And in his daydream, sometimes he would dream that maybe he would accidentally dump a bowl of mashed potatoes in his lap. And instead of at his house, people would all get furious with him for wasting the mashed potatoes or for making a, a mess. In, in that home, he's sure that everyone would just burst out laughing and say, remember the time you did that? And, and the dad would say, okay, okay, buddy, come on, let's get you a new shirt. You're about the size of my son and we'll clean up this mess. Don't you worry about it. Well, we're starting a series today, as, as Nathan said, uh, about the one another's in the Bible. And you may think to yourself, really? Because that doesn't sound all that exciting. And with all the issues in the world today, can't we talk about something more important, something more pressing, something more exciting? I mean, there are so many things you could get excited and passionate about. Why that phrase, one another? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. In fact, one of the interesting things, if you've never read the New Testament for yourself, you should. We're reading through the whole Bible this year as a church family. If you haven't started, pick up a reading plan and just start with today's reading. Uh, But... If you've never read the the New Testament for yourself, one of the things you'll notice is that there's not as many rules as you think. There are commands from Jesus and commands uh, from the Father in the Old Testament, and they still apply today, and they are given for our good because God loves us and He knows how life should be lived. But that's not really the point. See, a lot of people think the point is the, the people who are best at following the rules get ahead in life and God loves them more, and that's not really the way it works. In fact, the people in Jesus' time who were the best at following the rules turned out to be the furthest from God. 
The people who were the best at, at knowing and obeying the commands of God in the Old Testament, they were the ones who hated Jesus the most. So in the end, it's not just about being good, and it's not just about being religious, and it's not just about believing the right things. It's ultimately about all those things should make you into a person who treats other people the right way. And that's why 59 times in the New Testament, they use the term one another. God cares deeply about how we treat one another. So today we're going to look at the most important of the one another's, and that is Jesus's words, the night he was arrested, love one another. Let's take a look at chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I don't usually do this, but I'm going to give you the three points of the sermon right from the start so you know what's coming. We're going to talk about the command to love, the definition of love, and the extent of love. The command to love, definition of love, the extent of love. So the command to love, first of all, why does Jesus say a new command I give to you? After all, if you've read the Bible at all, you know this is the night Jesus is arrested. He's been ministering. He's been preaching for three solid years. He has told people to love each other many times before this. So he doesn't say this because it's new in the sense of you've never heard this before. He says it because it's new in the sense of nobody's ever done this before. And that doesn't mean nobody's ever loved anybody else. There were husbands who loved wives and mothers who loved children and, and friends who loved one another. The problem is there's never been a movement up till now, up till the night Jesus is speaking, there's never been a movement that was completely focused on our highest value is love. There were movements that were all about a particular philosophy of life or a particular political bent or, or bent on military conquest or this person should be king. But never before had there been a movement that said our primary value, what we're bringing into the world is love. And Jesus on the night, he's about to die within hours. Before noon the next day, he's going to be dead. Actually, before, before sundown the next day, he's going to be dead. And Jesus is saying, if I leave you with nothing else, I want you to love each other. And I find that interesting, don't you? Because Jesus is essentially leaving in the hands of his disciples the most important movement in the history of the world. And they've already proven they're not the most competent guys in the world, right? They've already proven they're not up to the task. So you'd think Jesus is going to give them this last-minute checklist of things to get done. Okay, here's the person who's going to be in charge when I'm gone, and here's the network of responsibility. And by the way, when you start planning churches, here's what the buildings need to look like. And when you have worship services, here's the kind of music you need to use, and, and, and here's, here's the kinds of decisions you need to make. No, Jesus doesn't talk about any of that stuff. Isn't it ironic that the very stuff that we tend to argue about and get hot and bothered about, Jesus doesn't even mention it in his word? Instead, all he's, all he's about is, I just want to make sure you're going to love each other. This is what, this is what I came to, to bring about was a salvation that would change the way you treat each other and the way you relate to me. Now think, when you think about that command to love, think about the man who's writing this command down for us. The Apostle John, according to the early church, unanimously say that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. John was the last of the apostles to live. According to, uh, according to church tradition, all the other the, the apostles were martyred for their faith. John alone survived. And although he was exiled, arrested, he survived into old, old age. And he writes this Gospel now what do we know about John the Apostle? We know he was the son of a man named Zebedee. He was a fisherman by trade. He had a brother named James. And what did Jesus call 
John and James. He had a nickname for them. Now, this, this shows you that Jesus, who we think of as very austere and very serious, was extremely funny. And his humor was the kind of cutting humor where he would pick at you. He would pick at what you uh, didn't want to be picked on about. For instance, John and James, we see in them, these are two highly self-important individuals. There's a story in, which, in Luke 9 where Jesus and the disciples try to go into a, a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village won't even let them pass through. And so John and James take Jesus aside and seriously, with no irony whatsoever, they say, um, do you want us to uh, call fire down from heaven, Lord, to roast them alive? And Jesus smacks himself in the forehead and says, I don't even know you people. What am I doing with you? And, and there's another occasion where John and James get Jesus off to the side and say, okay, we're talking low so the other 10 can't hear us, but we want to make sure when you're king of Israel someday, we want to make sure that we get to be number two and number three. I don't care which is two and three. John can have it. James can have it. Just as long as we're your right-hand men in the kingdom of God. And by the way, here's our mom, and she's going to argue for us too. You can't turn down mom, can you? So John and James are very self-important, they're very temperamental, they're very impulsive, they're very self-centered and ambitious. And people who have those characteristics, what do they hate more than anything else? They hate being made fun of. So what does Jesus do with John and James? He gives them a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder. Now what do you think that's about? I think that's Jesus about saying, watch out, John and James are going to blow up any minute now. They're going to lose it. Let's watch out for the sons of thunder. They think they're so important, so loud. They get all the attention. Jesus is poking at them. But by the time John writes his gospel, he's a different person. Do you realize that the gospel of John, in the gospel of John, there's only one disciple who's never mentioned by name. You want to guess who that is? John. John is never mentioned in his own gospel. Instead, every time the apostle John is referred to, he is simply referred to as the one Jesus loved. And that's not John bragging and saying, okay, I'm the guy Jesus loved more than anybody else. That's him saying, my name's not even worthy to be mentioned in this account. All you need to know about me is I'm just a guy Jesus loved. So that's the command to love. There's, a, there's an early church father named Jerome. Jerome lived about 2nd or 3rd century A.D. And he wrote some of the earliest histories of the early church. And he tells us that when John was an old, old man, and he got to that point where some of us do, where we get to our old, old years, and we can only, we can only remember one thing, we keep repeating the same thing over and over again. And, and for John, according to Jerome, his thing was, love one another, that's the Lord's command. If it be fulfilled, it will be enough. That's the command to love. Now, what is the definition of love? What does it mean? Because Jesus could have said, love one another and just gone on, gone on with his day and left us to interpret what love really is. But instead, he gave us a standard. You see, we think of love in sentimental terms. We think of love as sort of an extreme version of like. So how do you like your steak? No, no, no. I love my steak. Well, do you like your husband? Hey, he's okay. But Jesus set a different kind of bar. He said, just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. And for us, that's rather bad news. That means we've got a long way to go because you see the way Jesus loved. Let's talk about it. Four things about the way Jesus loved. Number one, he loved unconditionally. When you read the Gospels, you see him love everybody who comes his way. He loved the rich young ruler who rejected him. And he also loved the sinful woman who came and poured out the most valuable possession in, her, in her, whole, uh, her whole list of possessions, this bottle of perfume over his head, even though 
being seen with this woman damaged Jesus' reputation irreparably. He loved his own mother so much that it, at the time of his death, as he's hanging on the cross, and he's got few breaths left, he expends one of his few precious final breaths to say, John, take care of my mother when I'm gone. But he also loved the people who were standing there spitting in his face and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his disciples, his closest friends, even though they were, they were kind of a pain and they didn't catch on to his message and they, and they frustrated him from time to time. But he also loved Judas, even though Judas would betray him. And one of the great signs of love to me is that on the night of his arrest, Jesus washed the feet of all of his disciples, even though he knew Judas had already taken the money to betray him. That's unconditional love. Didn't matter how you treated him, he loved you the same. Secondly, he loved boldly. One of the things you notice if you read the Gospels and you've never read them before is Jesus wasn't nice. And that's a shock to us because we have this image of Jesus as being someone who would never harm a fly. But Jesus stomped on people's feelings. Jesus hurt people. Jesus made people angry. Jesus offended people. Let's think about this. No one crucifies nice people. Nobody ever wanted to shoot Mr. Rogers, right? you got to really make people mad to make them want to beat you nearly to death and then hang you on a cross. And Jesus said things that people hated. Jesus said things that made people angry. And sometimes if we really love somebody, we have to do that. Now let me just say, and we're going to talk more about this when we talk about that command, admonish one another, but there are people among us who are good at this, who are good at getting under someone's skin. There are people here who always have the last word. There are people here who, who have strong feelings and they're very passionate and they don't care who they make mad. And if you're one of those people, let me just ask you the question, and only you can answer this, you and the Holy Spirit, when you do that, are you doing it because you enjoy being right? Are you doing it because you like that feeling that I've just put someone in my place? Does it validate you? Are you doing it in spite of the fact that you hate hurting someone's feelings, in spite of the fact that it, it pains you to know that this person may never be your friend again because you said something they didn't want to hear, because you called them out on something where they need to be confronted, but you did it anyway? Because if you do it when you don't want to do it, then it's love. If you do it because it makes you feel better, it's not love. And that brings me to my next point. He loved practically. Jesus was full of great things to say. No one ever said the, th the kinds of things Jesus said. But Jesus didn't just say love. He did love. When he saw somebody who was sick, who was hurting, who was, who was impoverished, he helped them. He met their needs. He didn't just say, God bless you, my child. He solved the problem. And that's what love is. Love is practical. Love is not just words. It's not just feelings. It is action. Love is a verb. And you and me probably don't have the power to lay hands on someone and heal their illnesses and, and make the blind see and the lame walk, but, but we can love. Now, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you have a coworker, and in this example, I hope you don't work at First Baptist Church, but let's say you have a coworker who you don't like. A coworker who really, really gets under your skin. Somebody who annoys you, who's, who's overbearing, and, and who you just don't enjoy being around. But love means you never say that out loud to her or about her. 
And, and in fact, you pray for her daily. In fact, every time you're annoyed by her, that's just a cue to you. I need to pray for her again because my heart's not right. And you treat her with kindness and you speak to her as if she is your friend. And when, she's, when she has a birthday, you bring her a card. And when her mother's in the hospital, you go visit the mom in the hospital. And when you see this woman is obviously down, you sit down with her and say, tell me what's, go- tell me what's going on. What's in your heart? How can I pray for you? And what have you done there? You have loved this person. You cannot make yourself like them. You can't control how you feel. But you can choose to love. That's practical love. That's real love. And that's the love of Jesus. And then finally, he loved sacrificially. See, in this same talk, just a few minutes later, where it's recorded in John 15, 13, he raises the bar even higher when he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the highest form of love is self-sacrifice. And you and I probably will never have the opportunity to literally die saving someone else like Jesus did. But we can lay down our lives daily in so many ways. Now, sometimes uh, at weddings, I will say something that sounds incredibly unromantic. It's probably why I don't do many weddings. But so I, I, will, I will point out, I'll say, look at, look at this young man. Look at this young woman. Look how beautiful they look today. I mean, this is the high point. This is, they're never going to look better than this, right? I mean, this is, this is the day of their lives. But I want you to know, you see the affection they have for one another. You feel the love they have for one another. But this is not the high point of love. This is not the most loving thing you will ever see, and hopefully not the most loving thing you'll ever see between this couple, because it's not really love until it costs something. It's easy to love someone who's been dieting for six months to fit into a wedding dress. It's easy to love someone who showed up on time in a tuxedo to say, I do. It's easy to love someone in those circumstances, but what about when he loses his job and she says to him, it's okay. We're going to make it. You know, if we lose our apartment, we can always move in with your parents or my parents. We'll, we'll, we'll do okay. I believe in you. You're still my man. And, and when, when, when he realizes that he cannot stand her parents, but he says, I'm not going to say that to her. I'm not going to put her in a position of having to defend her mom and dad or make me angry. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go with her on all the holidays and all the birthdays, and I'm going I'm to treat them kindly, um, and, and I'm just not going to get in the way of her relationship with her parents because she's only got one set of parents. And when she goes through postpartum depression, he takes as much time off work as his work will give him so he can take care of that baby so she can get better. And when he has blown up and said some things that he shouldn't have, she's not going to hold those over him for the rest of his life. She's going to sit down with him when he's calmed down and said, listen, you can't talk to me this way, but I forgive you. I love you. Let's, let's have a relationship where we don't say those kinds of things to each other. You see, it's when it's hard that it's really love. And until you've done or said something that you, do, you really don't want to do or say, it goes against your nature and, it, and it's inconvenient and, and you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway because it's the right thing, then, then it's love. Can you love like Jesus? That's the definition of love. Then third and finally, we look at the extent of love. Because I guarantee you, because I know how you think, because I'm one of you, We're of the same species. Last time I checked, 
I guarantee there are people in this room who've already done this little mental calculus that says, okay, so this sounds hard, but he says love one another. He's talking about fellow Christians. So that means I don't have to love people outside these walls that way. So, okay, at least we've narrowed it down. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've had that thought, because most of us have. But two things. Number one, be careful with that, because you're taking Scripture out of context. You read the entire gospel, you read the entire New Testament, you read the entire Bible, you'll see, no, God's standard is much broader than that. But secondly, notice what Jesus says. He says, love one another so that all people may know that you're my disciples. In other words, that's to be our defining characteristic. That's what is to set us apart as God's people. Not that we go to church on Sundays, not that we don't use certain language, but that we love each other. So I want to do a little thought experiment with you. Imagine you have three people in a room together. There's an atheist who is currently suing his local city council to force them to stop opening their meetings with prayer. That's person number one. Number two is a guy who lives in Tehran, and every day he gets up and he goes out into the streets and he chants death to America. And number three is a guy who runs a pornographic website. All right, so you got these three guys in a room. You go in and you say, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? Let me ask you, do you think any of those three men are going to say, well, I think those are people who really know how to love? No, I don't either. I don't think they're going to say that. And that's a sign to us that we're falling short. As American Christians, that is a sure sign that the American church is in need of revival. Because that is what they said about the church in the early days. We have records, we have letters written by pagan people from the 2nd and 3rd century who write to one another and say, these Christians are bizarre. They have these weird rituals. They have these incredibly stupid beliefs. And, and they're just strange people. They all come from the wrong class of people. I would hate to be one of them. But you know what? They sure do love each other. Gosh, I wish we could treat each other the way they treat each other. People don't say that about us today. Now, this is the second thing I want to say to you about this idea of limiting our love. Why are we so eager to limit our love? Why are we so eager to draw a circle and say, these are the people I have to love, the rest I don't have to worry about? Why? Why do we think that way? Why is that our first instinct? See, there's a story in the Gospels that says that instinct goes back way further than this generation because Jesus once was standing in front of a group of people and he quoted to them Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus, which means that Jesus didn't make it up. It had been around for 1,500 years. And when Jesus said that, everybody knew he was quoting Scripture, and a man in the crowd said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? So here's an observant Jew in the crowd who's heard this command all of his life, and all of his life, he's been saying to himself, love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, that's a high bar. But thank God, those people over there aren't my neighbors, just these people over here. My fellow Jews, the people like me, Sure, I can do that. I can, I can make that my life's project. But those people over there, those Samaritans, those pagans, um, no. Those infidels, no way. And Jesus said, let me tell you who your neighbor is. And he proceeds to tell what becomes one of the most famous stories in human history. It's about a guy who's traveling on the way to Jericho. And robbers jump out and, and attack him and beat him and strip him of his clothes and leave him lying by the side of the road, bleeding and near death. 
And as Jesus tells, Jesus is such a master storyteller because he leaves us in this suspense. And here's this guy who's dying and we can all identify with him. And all of a sudden, along comes a priest, a Jewish priest. And we think to ourselves, oh, thank God. Because now this guy's going to be rescued because a priest, he, he intercedes between humans and God. So who better to rescue our friend? But the priest just walks right on past. And next comes a Levite. And we think to ourselves, well, that's just fine because Levites, what, their job is to, is to work in the temple, to serve in the temple of God. And so he's closer to God than I am. He's a blue-collar guy. He's not going to be afraid of bandits attacking him. He's going to help our friend. But no, the Levite walks on past. And then third, here comes a Samaritan. And if you've grown up in church, you, your Sunday school teachers always said, well, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. But let me tell you how much they hated each other. Their hatred went back to the days of Nehemiah. We, when you read Nehemiah in our Bible reading plan, you see uh, the Samaritans try to stop the Israelites from building the wall around Jerusalem when it had been torn down, and they, they threatened them with invasion. I mean, this is, a, this is a hundreds of years old rivalry, antagonism. So a moment ago when I said, if a militant atheist and an extremist Muslim and a, uh, and a pornographer were in a room and you ask them, what do you think of when you think of Christians, would they say they're people who love? And you, and you said to yourself, well, of course they wouldn't. Those people hate us. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. If he was telling that story today from our pulpit, it would be a, a Southern Baptist, evangelical Christian lying by the side of the road, beaten and dying. And along comes a militant atheist. Along comes an extremist Muslim. Along comes a pornographer. And we think, oh no, they're just going to finish him off. But instead, the hated enemy binds up his wounds. You realize Jesus didn't have to say this in his time. Everybody would have heard what he's saying because nobody carried around a medical kit, a first aid kit. That meant this guy had to tear his own garments to bind up the wounds of the injured man. That meant he literally gave the shirt off his own back. He puts him on his own animal, which means now the Samaritan has to walk. He takes him to a, an inn. He pays the innkeeper, says, here's some money to, to keep him safe until he recovers. And if, if I've underestimated, if if he doesn't, if, if he has to stay longer than I imagined, or if he, you know, he orders some in-room movies or something, you know, I, I will come back and pay it myself. I am writing you a blank check. And Jesus was saying, that's what it means to be a neighbor. That's what I mean when I say, love your neighbor. So the question you and I need to ask is, do I love people that way? Do I love the extremist Muslim? Do I love the militant atheist? Do I love the pornographer? Do I love the person who hates my guts? And, and I can honestly say I don't. And you probably would say the same thing. But the real question is, do I want to be that kind of person? Do I want to be the person that loves those people? And if your honest, honest response is, well, no, Jeff, I don't want to be that person because if I love them and they hate me, they're going to take advantage of my love to treat me poorly. You know, if, if, if we love those kinds of people, they'll, they'll destroy us. We got to meet their hatred with hatred. Or if your honest response is, listen, I, my hatred gives me strength. It gives me validation. Because let's, let's face it, it is very validating to have a person, or even better, a whole group of people who we can look down on and say, I'm better than them. They're my enemy. But if you don't at least want to be 
someone who loves like Jesus loves, then he's not really your Lord. Then you've said, save my soul, but leave my body alone. Leave my mind alone. And that's not salvation. So let's go back to the very beginning. Think about that little boy curled up under his neighbor's porch, listening to his neighbor's family laugh and joke and love each other. Think about it. Really, that's us. That's how we're born. We're born into a family, the human race, that does not get along. Where every kind word is is superseded by ten words of abuse or neglect. And we're dying for a family. A family that will love us. And along comes Jesus. Jesus is God's invitation that says, come into my house. Come into my house and eat at my table and never leave. Be my son Be my daughter. I will treat you just like you were born into the family. Jesus died to make that possible. Made it possible for us to be welcomed into that home. A home where every time we mess something up, God doesn't take the opportunity to destroy us, but instead instead says, let me clean that up for you. You're still part of the family. Don't worry. Jesus spoke these words that we just read today. Hours before he would lay down his life, for our sins. And he knew this was what it was all about. This is why he came. So if you can identify with the kid under the porch, if you say, I want that, then today is your day. You are here for a reason. God brought you here so that you could give your heart to him and enter his family for the first time and never leave. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation and you can make that decision. And if you're like me and like many of the people in this room, most of the people in this room perhaps, and you say, no, I'm in the family. I eat at the Father's table daily. I know that I'm accepted by Him. Then what are you and I doing to demonstrate that kind of love to the world that's watching? Do you love unconditionally, practically, boldly, sacrificially? Do you love everyone God brings into your orbit? Or do you just just restrict your love to the ones you like? See, let's get honest before Him today. If nothing else comes out of this, if if some of you are willing to get before the Lord and say, Lord, change my heart and make me someone who loves like you love, then this is a victory. That's what God is calling us to do. Because this this is how all will know we're his disciples if we love like he loved.